This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. This episode is also proudly sponsored by Reckitt Mead Johnson. Reckitt Mead Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive NFML portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meadjohnson.com. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Sunday. We are in a journal club week. Daphna, how are you? We love journal club week, don't we? Daphna passed her boards. <laughs> so everything's good. Everything's, everything's good. good. Yeah, it's like... No. Uh, what is it? uh, yeah, we, we, we had a tough week in the unit. However, yeah. it was nice to get the board scores back. Yeah. But it's the halo effect, right? The the positivity of one thing uh, carries over to others. So, congrats. yeah, you know, I actually posted about that on Twitter. Like the next day, there was like, you know, the world is still a little bit in chaos. So it just puts a puts a damper on even. But it also as goes to show how words. our experiences. So. Can I, can I, can I, I, I wouldn't expect me to rent so early in, no. the, in the episode. Well, let's hear it. <laughs> but that goes to show how maybe, just maybe, the forces at B should be conscientious of adding more stressors on our lives mm. as clinicians. Mm-hmm. Because when you realize that you passed your boards and you're like, oh my God, what a relief. Life is so much, whew, like the, 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 you take a breath, right? And it's like, why was I made to feel so stressed about this? Yeah. When, yeah. when, when. I, I graduated from medical school, I completed my residency, I completed my fellowship. Like this, this should really be a formality. And I'm like, I remember for myself, I was terrorized before the end, before the mm-hmm. results. I was like, can you imagine? Like, I'm supposed to be this this young neonatologist who's supposed to know all these things, and I just fail my boards. Can you imagine what does that mean? And I know that you're not supposed you're you're bigger than your board scores, and the board scores don't yeah, define. Yeah, we you. know that. I mean, in standardized tests in general, don't predict clinical success, right? But it still feels like this. It weird. made me feel like the bottom line is that from the end of the exam until the results, I felt like shit and I was working a full clinical yeah, hanging, schedule. Hanging in the balance kind of. Yeah. And we had sick patients and we have other personal stuff that are going on. In our case, we were in the midst of the COVID pandemic. So maybe, maybe we can find ways to make this a safer place uh, for for our trainees. All right. That was the rent of the morning. That Welcome was a back good to the one. show. That was a good uh, one. <laughs> approved. Um, okay, some some announcement that we wanted to go over. So obviously, we're we're uh, we got a ton of feedback on Twitter about the board review and how people were thankful for the board review podcast. We're yeah. very grateful that this was of help. We want to thank again Dr. Martin and Dr. Brodsky for making this possible because obviously, without their support and without their content, this would not have mm-hmm. been. This would have not have existed. They've been super flexible in mm-hmm. making this happen for you, the audience, because let's just say without naming names that we mm-hmm. reached out to other 
other uh, provider of educational content and they were less receptive to the idea of helping trainees uh, yeah. on their commute. <laughs> less receptive is, is an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, so, Dr. Uh, so, Kemi Martin, uh, Darabrotsky, they're legends. Um, mm-hmm. Let's just, uh, we are very, I'm very thankful that we were able to make this happen. And uh, check out the new format of the podcast until the boards are coming back up again. And then we'll kick back into gears with more questions and, and things like that. But we still are doing questions and we're still keeping you in shape. So, yeah, I think, I think the point of this kind of new format is to kind of, uh, do the dive, the deep dive before it's time to like really cram for the boards where we yeah. will amp back up with just questions, yeah. flood you with questions. Yeah. Um, but I think this will help prepare yeah. people in a less intensive way. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we wanted to announce is that there's the the incubator podcast is going to provide more content. Uh, we'll talk about some things that we're doing for different languages very soon, like Mm -hmm. very, very soon. But for the time being, we've recorded our first episode of what we're calling Tech Tuesday, where um, we don't have a frequency, but on on certain Tuesdays, we'll release a short episode with the creators and founders of uh, mobile technology or other form of technology solutions that can be used in the NICU so that uh, we can bring people up to date as to what's available out there. I think what we've noticed with Daphna was that people tend to have a, a set of favorite apps and and different other tools that they use. And and it's always like, you know, you're peeking. You're like, oh, what is this person using? What is that person yeah. using? And we don't really have a good repository of all the, of all the, the cool things coming out. Mm-hmm. So um, we talked to Yaya Ren uh, this week, and she's talking to us about her app, Premi Plus You. Um, and it's also a great thing because sometimes you download these apps that have some form of preemie NICU in it. And you're like, I'm not exactly sure what they're trying to do. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Like there, thanks to these small episodes, like the creators will tell you like, all right, this is what this is for. And then you can decide, I want to download it. I want to work with these people. It's it's very cool. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I think people might wonder, we don't have any stakes in any of oh, these. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. Um, if, I mean, you, you are developing an app. We'll talk about that at some point in time. And we'll let you know if we have any stakes. <laughs> But oh, we, we um, definitely in general, have we're just we definitely have stake in this app. Like the app I'm developing, I'm I have, <laughs> but, a lot of stakes. <laughs> a lot of stakes, but uh, but the others, no. The, 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 I mean, but this is the theme of the incubator, right? We're like we're 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 not getting paid for any of the things we're doing, <laughs> just so that we can remind everybody. Um, and but the goal is really to create this platform where people yeah. can actually have access. So Find that stuff. alone. And to be honest with you, we're not getting paid for this, but the feedback we get like right after the boards, for example, is so invigorating and it's worth more than whatever amount of money. Could yeah. And actually it helps a lot, right? Because our goal is to get more people listening because we we think that the the access is, is useful and we can tell that when you guys um, post about it, that, that it that it helps, right? Yeah. It gets more people engaged in the conversation and growing mm-hmm. Neo Twitter. And um, so thank you guys for, yeah. for you know, you don't have to comment, but you do and it's helpful. So. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So today we're doing Journal Club. Uh, should, I, should I start? Yes. Okay. So the first journal, uh, the first paper I'm reviewing is published in the Journal of Perinatology. It's called Association of Multiple Tracheal Intubation Attempts with Clinical Outcomes in Extremely Preterm Infants, a Retrospective Single Center Cohort Study. First author is Caitlin Miller from Dartmouth in, in New Hampshire. 
Um, so the background is is interesting, but uh, but nothing really earth shattering. If you if you know a little bit about tracheal intubation, you mm -hmm. should be familiar with a lot of the points that they're making. They're talking about IVH, for example, being a complication that's associated with tracheal intubation. And that the risk of IVH really increases with multiple attempts, and that multiple attempts is frequent in neonatal resuscitation. Um, they're also quoting this paper, which I think was nice in terms of putting numbers on these on this data, that only 49% of tracheal intubation in the NICU and 46% of uh, tracheal intubations in the delivery room, so both of them less than 50%, mm -hmm. were successful on the first attempt. So it's a, it's a humbling reminder, right, that uh, we're not as... I think if you talk to any neonatologist, we think like we're we're master intubators, but it's a good reminder that yeah. looking at the numbers, there's there's work, there's there's improvements, there's room for improvements for sure. So their question was: Is there any association between tracheal intubation attempts and the outcomes in extremely preterm infants? And more specifically, the objective was to identify if preterm infants exposed to either one, two, or three or more intubation attempts during the initial encounter in the first four days of life have increased incidence of death or severe IVH. I think it was very important to mm -hmm. underscore the word initial intubation because I'm assuming that if your baby has like six intubation during the hospital stay, it's most likely also associated with a higher degree of, mm -hmm. of illness and stuff. So I think I think that that was the reason why they, they, they did that. So this was a retrospective cohort study uh, using data that was collectively prospectively collected from a, a level 3B NICU in an academic tertiary center, and that was in Dartmouth, New Hampshire. And it was kind of nice for them to go over um, their, not their protocol, but their their practice, right? I okay. think it's, I really, I really respect the groups at institutions who, through these papers, have to divulge a lot of their practices because because many people don't feel comfortable doing that. So it's kind of nice. Yeah, why is that? You know, we're we're all just trying to learn from each other, right? I know. But um, so at their center, uh, extremely pre extremely preterm infants are either intubated in the delivery room for poor respiratory effort or selectively intubated for surfactant administration in the NICU for RDS. They premedicate uh, all their intubation with atropine, phenol, and succinylcholine uh, in rapid succession, and that's only done obviously in the NICU. This is not something that they have the luxury of doing in the delivery room, which kind of makes sense, I guess, uh, from a logistics st standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly enough, right? That's the big point of discussion of this paper. The provider chosen to attempt the intubation is selected based on experience, staffing, availability, and comfort level. So, reasonable but not very uh, rigid in terms of, of structure. The NICU providers that perform most intubation for infants less than 28 weeks are the nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and fellows. Um, at their institution, providers performing intubation need to have at least three intubations under supervision to be, consider to be considered competent. And in addition to that, the residents, the fellows, and respiratory therapists have quarterly intubation simulations to maintain competence. So the babies that they looked at were uh, babies who underwent a first intubation course in the first four days of life, and they were had to be born at 28 or less weeks of gestation. And that was looked at from uh, 2016 to 2020. They excluded um, any babies that were born uh, um, at outlying hospitals or who had significant congenital anomalies. So some more important uh, information on the study. Um, only the first encounter count, uh, was counted. They took data from the near for neos uh, 
collaborative. If you don't know who are the near for Neos, you should check them out. They have mm-hmm. a great collaborative for, for trainees and for intubation in general. And they looked at the date of intubation, the reason for intubation, the location, the use of pre-medication. They had some operational definitions as well uh, that were similar to the near for Neos registry, but an intubation encounter was defined as an episode of airway management ending with a successful intubation. The attempt was any maneuver where you had to insert a device and ended with the device removal. So if you entered the laryngoscope and that was considered an attempt and the mm-hmm. attempt was considered stopped when you removed the device. A... Um, um, Severe oxygen desaturation was defined as a 20% or more decrease in saturation from the highest point right prior to the intubation. Bradycardia was uh, the lowest heart rate under 100 beats per minute if the infant had a heart rate above 120 beats per minute prior to the first TI attempt. So they had some outcomes. Their primary outcome were death prior to NICU discharge or severe IVH defined as grade three or four. And then they have a bunch of secondary outcomes, uh, adverse events during the intubation and complications of prematurity. The adverse tr- intubation in tem- uh, uh, the adverse intubation um, events were considered oxygen desaturation, bradycardia, esophageal intubation, dysrhythmia, right mainstem bronchial, int- bronchial intubation, which by the way, like, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know about that. I was wondering what you thought about that. Like if you, if you write mainstem, you push the tube a bit too far. Right. But it's a, the baby's intubated, right? It's a successful right. intubation. It's a, it's, and and that can happen days after a, a successful intubation is yeah. eventually being, you know, right, right Brian. So you anyway. Step, but oral, oral trauma emesis, pain or agitation, cardiac arrest, hypotension, cardiac compression, less than one minute, laryngospasm. And then they had some complications of prematurity, pneumothoraces, neck, mm-hmm. uh, ROP, sepsis. BPD using the Vaughn definition. Okay. So let's see what the data shows. They had uh, 99 infants. Uh, The mean gestational age was 26.5 weeks. Mean birth weight was 900 grams. 46.5% were intubated on the first attempt. 29% required two attempts. And 24% required three or more attempts for successful intubation. Yeah. Humbling numbers. in terms of the the outcomes themselves, there was a statistically significant association of tracheal intubation attempt with death, p-value 0.004, but not with severe IVH or the composite outcome of death and severe IVH. So um, that was quite impressive. So when you're looking at the, the table, yeah. table three in the paper, um, in the one attempt, the number of patients who died was 4.3%. And then it jumped to 27.6%, two attempts, and then to 29.2% in three or more attempts. So quite impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, compared to successful intubation on first attempt, increasing TI attempts were associated with higher risk of death when adjusted for gestational age, mode of delivery, antenatal steroid exposure, sex, and location of intubation in multivariable regression analysis. The number of attempts was also adverse was also associated with adverse uh, events during the intubation that were associated with ad- adverse uh, TIAs. It's interesting because during in the paper, they keep mentioning adverse TIAEs, right? So adverse mm-hmm. tracheal intubation adverse events. Mm-hmm. But I feel like adverse is already in the, in the thing. So in why? the title. <laughs> I know. I don't know. Um, so that's, so that's, that's the, the primary outcomes. In terms of the secondary outcome, they found no association between intubation attempts and complications of prematurity, including pneumothorax, neck, retinopathy of prematurity, ROP, nosocomial infection, or uh, BPD. 
which was kind of nice because I was afraid that if they had found any association, then you would have wondered like, oh, how much can you actually connect the two, whatever. It, mm -hmm. So it was, it, was, it was good. Some other interesting results um, in a post hoc analysis of the intubations in the delivery room, which were 57 of them, and in the NICU, that was 42 of intubation, death was statistically associated with tracheal attempts in the delivery room, but not in the NICU. So that was very interesting to me because mm -hmm. obviously I think it goes to show how a controlled intubation, which based on the methods, right? I'm not saying that they don't have controlled intubation, but based on the on the methods and how they describe them and how they, they had the opportunity to premedicate the babies in the NICU. And obviously I'm assuming the the like everybody, like us included, in the delivery room, it's sure. always quite chaotic. It kind of is um it's well and and those were the babies that could stay on non-invasive, right, until they got to the NICU. Very true. So that's something to consider. Very true. There was no association between tracheal intubation attempts and IVH or the composite outcome of death or IVH in either the delivery room or the NICU. So in conclusion, mm -hmm. uh, the paper is uh, showing that increasing attempts before successful intubation is associated with death and adverse uh, tracheal intubation events, but not severe IVH or other complications of prematurity. And this is the point in the conclusion that it, to me is, is what we should discuss, obviously, is they speculate that carefully selecting the first provider for intubation mm -hmm. in extremely preterm infants could decrease attempts required before successful intubation and decrease adverse event and improve outcomes for future research with larger sample size is indicated. Obviously, that's the the two biggest limitations, just in case you we, mm -hmm. we, we lost you in the shuffle here, was it's a small study. It's like less than, less than whatever, it's like about 50, 50 patients in each arm, yeah. and it's a retrospective cohort study. So all the limitations associated with that design are present. But, but does that mean that uh, we have to now return to attendings and more experienced providers doing intubations. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> there have been other studies that showed the opposite, right? Especially I, I, when it comes to delivery room intubations that increased attempts were associated with increased IVH. So I think it begs the question that we need, we need bigger studies and way more opportunities, right? For people to practice. Because at some places, the most experienced uh, provider may not have intubated in a while. So, you know, it's it's complicated. It's complicated. It's, it's very complicated. I think it's, it's also something where um, I like the way they phrase it, right? That you have to pick the provider. Because, for, for example, at my training institution, the best person to intubate was probably the second and third year fellow, right? Mm -hmm. Because the fellow's covered all intubations, meaning mm -hmm. even if a, if a nurse practitioner or a therapist was intubating, the backup was going to be the fellow. Mm -hmm. And I think the attendings, thankfully for them, very rarely had to rarely. step in. Right. Um, if you're a first-year fellow, you're, you're still, I guess, learning. But once you were a second or a third year, you were, you were pretty, pretty competent. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be misleading. And, and you had been doing them. Right, yeah. like you, yeah. you'd been having the opportunity. Yeah. Right. So I think it'd be, it would be misleading if you just looked at another paper that said, "Oh, fellows should not be right." I mean, you have That's to be right. careful. But also, I think this paper is a very interesting follow-up to our last journal club where we talked about using high-flow nasal cannula during mm -hmm. intubation. Right. Mm -hmm. um, another reason why maximizing successful situations is is very important because of uh, because of these outcomes. And like you said, it's bizarre that they didn't find an association with IVH because that data is pretty strong and it's out there. But 
irrespective of that, their their association with with death is, is pretty scary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, an interesting yeah, paper. reason enough. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk about this article, which perfectly dovetails with our interview this week. Um, so we had on um, Dr. Annie Jambier, and if you haven't listened to the interview, we hope you'll take a listen. Um, but it just so happens one of her articles um, was released this month, The Ethics of Family Integrated Care in the NICU, Improving Care for Families Without Causing Harm. And Dr. Janvier is the, the lead author. And of note, I think this is really important that the author list includes a lot of parent groups and parents as primary authors um, on the study, which I think is something that we should really be doing more of. Um, the journal Seminars of Perinatology, this is coming to us from Canada. Um, the CHU St. Justine NICU is the largest mother-child NICU in Canada. Um, and so I think it's important to note when we're talking about family integrated care, what, uh, what does it look like in the unit where the data is coming from? So it's a 75, uh, bed level four unit, uh, about 35 beds dedicated to intensive care. They have about a thousand admissions a year. So what's the question? The question was really, are there some aspects of family integrated care that cause harm to families? And, um, I guess some background information. Um, Dr. Janvier uh, is a neonatologist who's also the parent of a NICU infant. Um, and I think some of this work has come out of those experiences. Go listen to the episode, people. Go just listen to the episode. <laughs> then you'll know. Um, is it a valid question? So absolutely. There's a huge push for family integrated care, which has been shown in um, – you know, a number of studies to improve stress, anxiety, bonding for most parents. Um, However, um, the studies are small. The studies have a lot of um, heterogeneity. um, And it may lead everyone to believe that all families want to do all of the things that we propose for family integrated care when it might not be the right thing for every Mm -hmm. family. So that's what they wanted to look at. Um, I think uh, the group does a really good job talking about some of the ethical issues in family integrated care. So I'll talk about that a little bit before the survey data. So um, some of the limitations, let's say, to the to the research that's been done in family integrated care is that um, many control groups were basically these quote unquote non-participating parents. So They were just parents who were absent, which we see all the time in the NICU. And studies were rarely addressing why the parents were non-participating. You know, what were the barriers to having those parents in the unit, um, which is uh, a huge implication on, on, on those studies. There's still not enough studies or large enough studies. And then one criticism of the major um, family integrated care trial was that parents in the intervention group, again, uh, in stark contrast to the quote-unquote non-participating participating parents, were parents who were present for at least six hours during the day um, caring for their infants, which is truly not feasible for most most families. Um, and this definitely limits generalizability. In addition, mm-hmm. families who can spend that much time at the bedside tend to have a lot more additional resources, including um, things like family and social support. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition, uh, a lot of the family integrated care studies had large exclusion criteria, um, and I won't go over those, but in general, um, 
a lot of them are our very vulnerable patients and families, like the mm-hmm. extremely preterm um, congenital anomalies, um, high risks for for death in the NICU. And so excluding those um, parents may limit um, some of the information we get from those studies. Um, do we exert too much unreasonable pressure on families, such as parent presence during the rounds? So for example, what if our families work during the day? What if they have a fear of public speaking? So um, are our um, options for family integrated care um, unreasonable? Shared decision-making. Is this the right model for all families? So some families actually prefer a more paternalistic approach, which is um, kind of this pendulum swing that we've had in terms of working with families. So um, these were some of the concerns that they were worried about and why they engaged in this study. So the study design is survey data of parents. Um, the inclusion criteria is all a uh, study. They did a study survey data, both of parents and um, providers in the NICU. So inclusion criteria was all groups of full-time clinicians who worked in the unit. So they had physicians, um, including uh, NEOs, fellows, residents. They had nurses, respiratory therapists, social workers, psychologists, pharmacists, nutritionists, clerks, chaplains, um, basically anybody you can think of that was having face-to-face contact with families. And then they involved parents who were hospitalized in the NICU for more than one month and um, parents attending the neonatal follow-up clinic um, after discharge. So one parent was asked to participate for each child. There's no real exclusion criteria except for not meeting the inclusion criteria. And I'm going to make a point about this because, for example, we have lots of babies admitted that don't stay in the NICU for a full month. Um, and so we know that those families um, still have increased rates of stress and anxiety and trauma associated with the NICU admission. So I would have liked to have seen that group included. Mm-hmm. The intervention is uh, really over a two-month period. They asked participants their opinions regarding a list of potential items that could be included um, in, quote-unquote, family-integrated care. Um, and then some of the questions, for example, were at the present time in this unit, can parents um, do this activity if they want to? Um, have you been engaged in this activity? And ideally, should parents be offered the opportunity to engage in this X activity? So I'm going to go over this the data. And then there are some really good quotes, I think, that I'd like to share. Um, you like I won't the quotes. Talk about, I love the quotes, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I won't share all of them, I promise. So you can you can take a look if, you, if you'd like. So baseline characteristics, they had 332 participants. They had 240 healthcare professionals and 92 parents. I told you about the makeup of the healthcare professionals. Um, the 92 parents who participated, 48 uh, were families of the currently hospitalized children and 44 parents um, who participated uh, at follow-up. 90% of the um, parental respondents were mothers, which is also not uncommon in studies of family integrated care. Um, and that's something else that we can definitely work on is including um you know, the non-birthing partners. Um, 60% were aged between 30 and 40 years, which is interesting 
also depending on where you work and what your um, uh, makeup of parents looks like. Uh, 9% were single mothers, and 34% were primates. So this was their first child. The majority of infants that follow up were preterm infants who were born at less than 29 weeks. Um, so that may skew the data a little bit. And the hospitalized infants of the parent respondents were also majority preterm or congenital malformations, 20%. And they had an overall mean gestational age of 29 weeks. So again, another mm, ongoing criticism of our of our research is that that we um, have a focus really on the on the moderate to extremely preterm. So the primary outcome was looking at really the non-medical items. So these sorts of activities include changing the diapers, giving the bottle feeds, reading stories, singing, taking photographs, um, getting information about breastfeeding, being present at rounds, not um, not providing the rounding, but being present at rounds. And for each of these items, over 97% and usually 100% of parents and all um, of the healthcare professionals agreed that parents were participating in these activities and that they should be participating. The main frustration parents expressed regarding these kind of quote-unquote non-medical activities was variation in practice from one nurse to another. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Then they wanted to look at these more medical items. And so um, these medical items included being present for resuscitation, for intubation, um, being part of the vaccination, presenting their babies at rounds, and doing things like tube feeding or managing the oxygen titration while they're at bedside. So Not surprisingly, physicians were generally in favor of more parental involvement, significantly more than other groups, including parents, which I think that's kind of the surprising component. Um, Nurses were divided and other providers had even more reservations and were even more split on their responses. For example, 35% of parents reported being present during a resuscitation or thought that parents should be there when they want to. In contrast, 80% of physicians thought parents should be there, 30% of nurses, and 22% of other um, providers thought that parents should be present for um, resuscitation. Mm-hmm. And in terms of parent satisfaction, being um, present during uh, uh, intubation was 48%, resuscitation 35%, vaccination 88%, and presenting their baby at rounds was 53%. And so this is an intervention that is being rolled out at a lot of institutions. And for this cohort of families, only 53% um, thought that parents should be presenting their babies at rounds. Parents reported that they were present. Parents who reported they were present generally reported that parents should be present if they wanted to. So if the parents had engaged in an activity, they felt they were more likely to say that parents should be um, present. Um, However, if parents were not present, like during intubations, they either did not think parents should be present um, or only parents who wanted to should be present. There was consensus for some items. For example, parents did not want to be in charge of checking the site of IV infusion. And in general, (laughs) me, I don't want to be in charge of checking the (laughs) IV infusion site. And clinicians also generally did not think that this should be delegated. And other items were more variable, such as adjusting oxygen concentrations. So 30% of parents wished to adjust the oxygen, which was less than I thought, compared to 50% of physicians who thought that they 
should be engaged in that activity and only 13% of nurses or other professionals. I know the nurses and the RTs did not want anybody, even they didn't want the physicians titrating the oxygen. (laughs) So um, other interesting results. So they really tried to quantify, classify the kind of open-ended benefits of family integrated care. And in general, most parents liked the family integrated care model or concept, which one, enabled them to be a family and feel like real parents. Two, they had a desire to feel like and be quote unquote good parents. And three, um, there was strength and empowerment associated with family integrated care. In some cases, even repairing past trauma, such as guilt they felt about having delivered a sick baby. So I'll try to get you some quotes now. Um, I'll go. (laughs) The overall message is that families do like family integrated care. So that that's the goal of this article is not to say we shouldn't be doing it, but should we be doing it a little bit differently? So um, at first I felt the nurses did all the things I should have done. The job my broken uterus should have done that. I wasn't a mom. I was scared of the unit and even of my baby. I started feeling stronger though, because of all these things I did. I thank the nurses for their help. And it was really nice to be able to suggest things Um, to improve this for other parents in the NICU. Not surprisingly, a third of parents reported guilt associated with being asked to perform tasks that they were unable or unwilling to do or felt pressure to do. Another quote, every day a nice nurse would ask me if I would come back in the evening, but I had two other small children at home who reacted to my absence and an exhausted husband who couldn't stop working. So I ended up every other night either crying at home, missing my baby or crying in the NICU, missing my other kids. Your family integrated care occurs at home too. I wish they understood that sometimes just asking us hurts. Another quote, there were many questions that made me uneasy. No, I do not want to feed my baby with a tube. I never have wanted to describe her on rounds. This is my third child, and I wanted to be a good dad to all my children. For me, dads don't do those things. Even if you tell me that they could or should, these are temporary medical things. But being a dad for me means things um, like speaking to her, singing her songs, changing the diaper, giving her baths, taking her in my arms, being interested in the next step and what is going on. I don't want to be a nurse or a doctor. It is important to me to remain a dad. If she needs to come home with tubes, um, then my answers would be different because then that would be part of their routine care. And then certainly this quote on nursing variability, I think is very valuable. Um, It's hard to know what your role is as a parent. The same day I can be told she's too unstable for kangaroo. And then after the nurse changes that I, it would be good for me to kangaroo her. Why hasn't it be done yet? And then you feel super down. You feel anger. Like is one nurse too stressed or is another too carefree? And then you just want to leave the unit. These small things really affect me right now. So um, I think the quotes can really help you understand that like having parents engaged in things that they feel are parent-like is important and that that's different for every family. The other um, thing they wanted to highlight was the importance of veteran parents. So involving resource parents was overall deemed as positive and definitely to be continued. Um, This uh, father um, said, it took me a long time um, to feel like a parent. Um, I could, like I could face the music. It did not happen all of a sudden. And the nurses and doctors need to know this. Do not force us to do things if we're not ready. 
what helped me the most was communicating with other parents. Online support groups helped me connect with parents who had been there to understand that some of my feelings were normal. So um, you don't even have to have veteran parents in the unit, really just having access to them, even by a number of online support groups. Um, and then finally, guilt and decreasing guilt um, in the way, in the language that we use. So just asking, do you want to be here during the intubation? Makes me think that I need to be there, even if I don't want to. This is what good parents do. And I want to be a good parent or at least show them that I'm a good parent. And I want to feel like a good parent. What kind of parent wants to leave their child when asked if they want to stay? If there's no good answer, they should say something like, some parents want to be there during the intubation. It makes them feel in control for these parents. Imagining is worse than seeing. For other parents, it is different. Seeing an intubation on their child is too stressful and it does not help them or their family. What kind of parent are you? And um, Dr. Janvier talked about that in our interview with her saying some parents, other parents, and just describing that there are different types of parents and um, neither is good or bad. Finally, they um, identified a list of priorities in terms of family integrated care and some specific QI actions that their teams were going to take. So the major priorities were assisting parents early to adapt uh, to their new roles in the NICU as team members by providing a welcome package that was written um, by parents um, and having prenatal support groups, improving integration of parents and discharge planning. So that was an especially um, valued component. Um, and they uh, had the development of a new discharge nurse role. Decreasing family integrated care nursing variation um, by developing guidelines and protocols. I think everybody on the team feels this. Um, and then two more, particular attention to personalized care where parents describe potential harm and enhancing interaction with veteran resource parents. So I've already told you what I think. Thoughts? Yeah, no, it's 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 fantastic work. I uh, I love the idea that what we think matters tremendously does not matter as much. This is sort of my <laughs> moral compass, yeah. um, because I think uh, I think many of the guests we've had on the podcast for the past year have said the same thing that mm -hmm. it's not because sometimes an association is found or or a relationship is identified that if you don't do it then everything's going to fall apart and the patient's going to die, right? So I think this is the type of paper that shows that you have room. You have room mm -hmm. to, right? It's like, yeah, it's it's great if you could if you could be at your baby's bedside 24-7, right? But it may not be feasible. And guess what? It'll be okay, right? I, I just love this idea that we can be forgiving with our with our families and we can give them the room to just breathe a little bit and that this is uh, something that can be quantified and Dr. Janvier is so good at doing that. So um, I love it. I just love yeah. it. Cause, cause I sometimes think the overall message is just, you know, meeting, meeting parents where they are. Right? Absolutely. And you see parents who are so dedicated, for example, to breastfeeding and some parents who are just being wrecked by mm -hmm. the pressure or by the commitment. And it's these types of paper that allow you as a provider and for nurses and for everybody to say, hey, like, just, just no, right? To, to be able to tell the parents, no pressure, do the best mm -hmm. you can, it will be fine, is something that we don't say enough of. So uh, yeah, and and tell let them tell you what they enjoy. So we, mm -hmm. we think, yeah, we tend to uh, do a lot of transfer of what we think mm -hmm. is something that they would enjoy when in truth. Anyway, go listen to the episode with Dr. Jamvier. It's, it's really, really great. And this is uh, a very good follow-up to that paper or vice versa.
Your turn. Okay, Daphna. Yeah, since since uh, since you uh, since went down I the took r- so long, that's what you. <laughs> I have to rush now. Now you have to rush. Okay, so this article uh, that I wanted to review next is called "Effects of Effect of Antibiotics in the First Week of Life on Fecal Microbiota Development." First author Amy Van Daly from Utrecht. Utrecht in the Netherlands. It's published in the archives and uh, it's a very interesting paper. So I'm going to skip the background. We know that we have a microbiome that it could be perturbed by antibiotics and all these things. So the question was, what are the long-term effects of early antibiotic exposure on the developing microbiota during the first two and a half years of life? Very interesting stuff. So like they were looking... As a, in a prospective observational study of term infants from four teaching hospitals in Holland. Um, the, they included term infants who received antibiotics like in the first few days of life for rule out sepsis and they categorized them whether they got like a few days versus they got seven days. And um, they excluded babies who had congenital illnesses, severe uh, perinatal infections, transfer uh, for which they needed transfer to the NICU, mothers who were on probiotics, um, within six weeks of delivery, or an interesting exclusion criteria, insufficient knowledge of the Dutch language. Mm. Um, take that. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I have I had many more issues <laughs> with the paper, but I thought I would mention that. Um, important design information. All uh, babies who were antibiotics received gentamicin with the combination of some other form of penicillin, whether it is penicillin, amoxicillin, or augmentin. They collected uh, nine fecal samples from these infants until discharge from the hospital, and then they were um, they were sem- they were frozen and they were tested. And then the sampling continued at home by the parents, um, where during the first year of life they collected eight samples and then they brought it to the clinic on ice. Mm-hmm. Um, good for them. <laughs> good for them. <laughs> That's no small task. <laughs> and then there was a final sample that was collected at two years of age. Um, and then they did all the sequencing and analysis, the alpha diversity on the sample. Um, so the primary outcome of this particular study was looking at the impact of antibiotic exposure in the first few days of life on the microbiota development in the first two and a half years. Secondary outcomes were to examine the short versus the long antibiotic duration, the different antibiotic types, and uh, the, feeding deli- the feeding methods, formula versus breast milk, and the delivery methods, vaginal versus uh, C-section. Okay, so let's talk about baseline um, characteristics. So they had two groups, right? They had a group of babies that didn't receive antibiotics. That was 126 patients. And then they had a group of babies that received antibiotics. That was 56 patients. The gestational age in weeks um, um, was 39.4 weeks in the uh, babies that did not receive antibiotics versus 40.4 weeks in the babies that did receive antibiotics. Um, Mean birth weight compared... 3 kilos, 478 grams versus 3 kilos, 711 grams. Um, There were some significant differences in um, baseline characteristics, and those were based on gestational age, birth weight, and the additional antibiotic exposure between one to six months. So let me talk to you about that. So what they did is within the antibiotic uh, group, they Mm -hmm. had two two subgroups, the antibiotic 2, antibiotic 7, which represented the babies who received a shorter course of antibiotics, like two, three days, versus antibiotic 7, which were the babies who received a full seven-day course. So the babies who received the short course was 20 patients, seven days was 36 patients. And Mm -hmm. then they collected additional information, obviously, because, okay, so like the baby goes home and you want to find out the impact 
of the antibiotics on the microbiome. So babies get more antibiotics. They get sick and they more, get more antibiotics. So they did try to collect this information. And this was a sort of uh, yes, no type of questionnaire. And there were significant differences. So between additional antibiotics, between month one and six, um, only 5% of the patients received mm. antibiotics in the, group of the baby, in the group of babies who received a short initial antibiotic course versus 34% in babies who had a more prolonged course. And when they looked at even more additional antibiotics from seven months until 12 months, then this, this difference was still pretty pronounced um, between 10% for the babies who received only two days of antibiotics versus 24% for the babies who received a seven-day um, course. So the, the results were quite interesting. So Exposure to antibiotics was associated with significant increase in the relative abundance of enterobacteria at three weeks and one year, and a decrease in bifidobacteria from one week until three months of age, only in vaginally delivered, but not in C-section born infants. Similar deviations were noted in babies who received a full seven-day course of antibiotics, but not in babies who received a short course of antibiotics of like one to two days. After antibiotics, breastfed infants had, had lower relative abundance of potentially pathogenic enterobacteria compared with formula-fed infants and recovered two weeks faster towards control. And you should look at these graphs uh, because it's quite impressive to see the changes in the microbiome over time based on these initial exposure to antibiotic. So in conclusion, um, antibiotic exposure in the first week of life in-term newborn disturbed the microbiota up to a year with more significant deviation after longer antibiotic exposure, i.e. five to seven days. Both C-section delivery mm -hmm. and antibiotic administration in the first week of life are associated with deviant intestinal microbiota, but the two combined are not associated with further deviation compared to babies who just went through C-section with no antibiotic. Breastfeeding was associated with reduced severity and duration of perturbation compared mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. formula feeding. Um, but the, the graphs are very interesting, and you see the different variation in, mm -hmm. in, in the microbiome on these graphs. It's very eloquent, um, and, it's, and it's puzzling to see, right, how um, these interventions early on at birth can have such a dramatic impact down the road. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that, sh that should make us even more conscientious of our antibiotic stewardship. So mm -hmm. I don't think there's much, there's much to discuss. It's a very interesting study. Um, check it out. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Um, it's nice just to, it's, it's a good reminder, right? We know about antibiotic stewardship, but it, when you see it laid out like that, it's hard to ignore. Yeah. Um, um, okay. Um, my next um, article uh, is called Association of Early Discharge with Increased Likelihood of Hospital Readmission in the First Four Weeks for Vaginally Delivered Neonates. Um, lead author Maria uh, Pojan. Um, from at the the journals Acta Pediatrica, and this is coming to us from um, units in Finland. So um, the main aim was to determine whether hospital readmission rates by 28 days from this kind of neonatal period are elevated um, in babies with early discharge, again, in this cohort in Finland. We, uh, they uh, sought to identify the causes and predictors of early discharge, um, the causes and predictors of readmission rates, uh, and specifically admissions to the intensive care unit, and also for um, death in the neonatal period. 
So it's basically a balancing measure um, for this decreasing length of stay and uncomplicated vaginal deliveries, which has really gotten shorter and shorter um, of over the course of the last. And we talked a little bit about that on the Neo Review podcast about like Billy yeah. and early discharge from the nursery. Um, right. This is a this is a, an ongoing topic now about how mm-hmm. early can you send these babies home? Exactly, exactly. And so um, their inclusion criteria, um, they have this uh, large. Uh, uh, registry. So they have the Medical Birth Register of Finland, um, and it included 333,321 vaginally delivered live burn, live born singletons <laughs> at a gestation live burn. <laughs> not, they were not live burn. They were uh, live born singletons at gestational age of uh, greater than or equal to 37 weeks. Exclusion criteria, obviously, were delivered via C-section if you're born out of hospital, um, if you uh, were admitted after birth directly to the neonatal ICU or admitted after birth to a different pediatric ward, um, they were excluded. Also excluded chromosomal babies with chromosomal anomalies um, if they... Um, they did include some babies with chromosomal anomalies, but only if those anomalies were detected like after the perinatal period. So if you knew prenatally or were diagnosed in the neonatal period, you were excluded. So um, what does their routine care look like? So in Finland, pediatricians examine all newborns before discharge. And if the checkup occurs when the infant is less than 24 hours old, newborns are invited to a pre-scheduled re-examination by a pediatrician by three to five days of age, Hmm. which is a little different than what we do here. And in addition, infants discharged at the age of less than 48 hours, um, so not less than 24, but yet still less than 48 hours, and infants with risk factors were referred to checkup um, via an outpatient clinic run by a midwife at the hospital. In the remaining cases, so if you stayed more than 48 hours, um, a public health care nurse checks the newborn at three to seven days of age. So that's the system there. And they split the babies into three different groups, babies who were discharged on the day of birth, first day, discharged one day after birth, second day, and discharged beyond the day after birth, so after the second day. And then, so they looked at the data first in these three cohorts, and then they looked at it and in terms of early discharge, which meant babies discharged on the first or second day as, combined, as um, compared to babies who were discharged after that point. So um, I told you they had this really large cohort. Um, In total, 8% of newborns were discharged, quote unquote, early. That is on the first or second day. And um, this percentage increased over time. So over the years that they looked at, more and more babies were being discharged in uh, the first or second day. Um, The yearly change was statistically significant between the first or second day and after the second day. Um, but not between the first and second day. So they had more babies leaving before 48 hours, but not necessarily more babies leaving before 24 okay. hours. Um, and in this early delivery, uh, early discharge group, most of the mothers were more than, uh, more than or equal to 30 years old. They were quote unquote upper level employees. So I had to look this up but in Finland. That meant administrative, managerial, or professional um, work. Yeah, we have that in France. Uh, occupations. Yeah. Yeah. And most of the newborns were born at the central hospital. So they also looked at the data by delivery hospital. 
um, the babies were less likely to be SGA, they were less likely to be LGA, and they were less likely to have needed phototherapy. So those were the predictors of early discharge. Of all comers, of all neonates, 3% were readmitted to the hospital by the time they reached 28 days of age. Um, So for this cohort, that was just over 10,000 babies. The infants discharged after the second day were readmitted less often than those discharged early. Readmission rates increased over time, especially among infants discharged early. And the time between hospital discharge and readmission was shortest among infants discharged on the first day. Um, So the median um, readmission time was five days. And of uh, of all of the infants readmitted, most initial readmissions occurred at um, less than seven days, so 32%. Um, 29% were admitted between seven and 13 days, 20% between 14 and 20 days, and 18% um, between 21 and 27 days. Uh, the most common reasons for readmission were <laughs> miscellaneous minor causes, um, especially among infants discharged on the first day. Um, the most common single cause for readmission was jaundice, which is uh-huh. not surprising. So 30% of infants, followed by infection, 20% of infants. Um, readmission because of hypoglycemia and inadequate nutrition affected 0.3% of newborns on the first day, 0.1% of newborns on the second day uh, who were discharged, and after the second day, discharge um, even less so. Um, other categories had no statistical um differences. So early discharge was a significant risk factor for readmission um, when the groups were divided into two discharge groups. So an after second day discharge was associated with decreased risk of admission. However, a first day discharge was not um, statistically a significant risk factor for readmission. Infants and mothers with BMIs greater than 30 or less or age less than 25 years, as well as infants born interestingly, between 38 and 38 and six weeks, um, who were male LGA with a history of phototherapy or born after the year 2009, were more likely to be readmitted. Infants of primips, um, infants with gestational age greater than 41 weeks or born in the Northern University Hospital had a decreased risk of readmission. They looked at ICU admissions. In total, uh, in the group, 75 newborns were admitted to the NICU. Um, 12% of those infants were discharged on the second day. 88 um, were discharged after the second day. Um, And none of the babies admitted to the ICU were discharged on the first day. Infants admitted to ICU increased over time and differed significantly by hospital. The causes of these admissions included infections, GI problems, neurologic problems, respiratory problems, and uh, cardiac problems. Um, And still, jaundice was the most common single cause followed by respiratory tract infections. Mm -hmm. In nine of the later cases, RSV was diagnosed. Um, Nine additional neonates were readmitted because of sepsis to early onset and the remaining late onset. All 12 newborns who died had been discharged at greater than or equal to two days old. So they were not in the early discharge group. The causes of death were sudden infant death syndrome in five, cardiac problems in four, um, including a baby with hypoplastic left heart, and infections in two cases. So this was obviously a huge uh, cohort. Um pretty good data because of the national registry. Um, the limitations, um, are really generalizability, I guess, um, to the rest of us who have a very different, 
you know, parental leave policy mm-hmm. um, and a different outpatient pediatric structure um, than maybe we do in Finland. I was reassured that the babies in the early discharge did not necessarily have more ICU admissions or death, but certainly readmissions, especially for Billy Rubin. Yeah. Fascinating paper. Fascinating paper. The few takeaways um, I have is take a look at table three, look at the gestational mm. age breakdown. It's cool. It seems pretty clear that obviously the more immature the baby, the more likely you are to get readmitted. I really, I really got. Yeah. And this was a cohort just of greater than 37 weeks. Right. So even that those just. So they looked at 37, 38, 40, 41. Right. And then more than 42. And the rates of readmissions right. were 7.4% at 37 weeks, 5.3 at 38, 2.2 at 41, and 2.1 at more than 42. So obviously, yeah. the, even if still term, quote unquote term, um, mm-hmm. y- you still had a difference there. I think it, to me, it highlights a huge dilemma because if you like, there's also this this graph in this table, uh, which one is it? Figure two, I think it is, mm-hmm. where you see mm-hmm. a nice difference over time in the rates of readmission yeah. where the babies who get discharged early get readmitted more. But when you look on the y-axis, like you're oscillating between 10 and 15%. Right. And we're talking about rates right. of readmissions that are like 3 5% chance, which means that there's 95% chance these kids don't get readmitted. And so I'm putting myself in the perspective of the clinician or the parents. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as a clinician, these are pretty good odds. I mean, if the chances are 3%, it's really mm-hmm. not that bad. But I'm thinking as a parent, it's like, I don't want a 3% chance of sepsis and, and all these things. It's concerning. So I don't know where people will land on a cognitive mm-hmm. bias standpoint and also the hospitals. Yeah, I think this could confirm either bias if you had one. Absolutely. And I think for us in the US, maybe this is a sign that we should stop um, measuring. Because you know how adult, I mean, I work with an adult physician at home. <laughs> so rates of readmission in the adult world are a thing. Like if you discharge a patient from the internal medicine floor mm-hmm. or from the cardiology unit and they come back within seven days, it's a, it's a quote unquote ding on the hospital or on the department. But maybe that we shouldn't be subjected to that as neonatologists because it's like, let them go home. What what am I supposed to do? Yeah, and and there's so many things we don't know about the baby yet, and you can only learn so much in the first Absolutely. 48 hours. Absolutely, right? and so that's why I think this bias is going to be an issue because if you tell me 5% yeah. chance these kids get readmitted, and I know that if the baby gets readmitted within seven days, I'm going to have the hospital saying, hey, your babies are coming back after you discharge. It's, it's an issue. So – uh, very yeah. interesting paper. Take a look. I love the figures. Very eloquent stuff. Great yeah. figures. So we'll yeah. post some of them on Twitter, but yeah, excellent stuff. All right. We're running short on time. I got to go. I have two more papers and you have one, right? Two more? I have two. Okay. I have to go, go quick then. First one is in Journal of Pediatrics. It's a subject I'm very attached to. It's called Post-Discharge Iron Status in Very Preterm Infants mm-hmm. Receiving Prophylactic Iron Supplementation After Birth. First author, Carmen Landry. This is a group out of Nova Scotia in Canada. Um, the background is we know preterm babies are at risk of iron deficiency, iron deficiency anemia. This has long-term neurodevelopmental consequences. So the purpose of the study was to assess the iron status, prevalence of iron deficiency, and associated factors at four to six months corrected age in very preterm infants to determine if routine testing for uh, iron deficiency should be considered at this age. They used a database from uh, the the AC Allen Nova Scotia Provincial Perinatal Follow-Up Program. It was a retrospective cohort study. They looked at all babies born uh, less than 31 weeks of gestation um, between 2005 and 2018. Um, 
they included babies who were um, 23 and 0 to 30 and 6. Any babies with congenital chromosomal anomalies, hematological problems, infants who were seen outside the clinic system, and those who died before four to six months of corrected gestational age were excluded. So some of the design, important design information, all eligible preterm infants uh, are supplemented with prophylactic iron at a dose ranging from two to four milligrams per kilo per day, starting at two to four weeks of chronological age per the Canadian Pediatric Society guideline. Um, the amount of iron received through formula slash fortifiers is accounted for while calculating this iron dose. Again, we'll talk about this when we talk about the app we're building. Iron was not routinely held for patients in sepsis unless a blood transfusion was given. At discharge, iron prophylaxis is recommended to continue until 9 to 12 months corrected with dose adjustments for weight, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. The infants are seen at 4 to 6 months corrected age through the clinic. They're um, being monitored for neurodevelopment, and they defined iron deficiency as a serum ferritin of less than 20 grams per liter or less than 12 grams per liter at 4 to 6 months, respectively. Um, the iron deficiency anemia was defined as a hemoglobin of less than 105 grams per liter along with meeting criteria for iron deficiency and iron overload is 300 grams per liter. So mm -hmm. uh, 411 infants were included in this study. 32% uh, had iron deficiency at follow-up. 32%. Mm -hmm. 2.7 had iron deficiency anemia. Zero had iron overload. Um, mm -hmm. the infants with iron deficiency were more likely to be born with, uh, born to women with a gestational hypertension, lower gestational age, lower birth weight, and they were more likely to have received a blood transfusion during the NICU stay. And they were uh, more likely to have a higher rate of culture positive sepsis. So in the cohort, 38% of infants stopped receiving iron supplementation before follow-up. 38%. So they showed up to, mm. to follow up and they were not uh, being given the iron supplementation. Supplemental mm -hmm. iron intake at follow up was significantly lower in the group receiving exclusive formula feeding compared with groups receiving mm. mixed and exclusive breastfeeding, which I think stems from the fact that people must be under the impression that because formulas are supplemented in iron, it's sufficient for a preemie, mm -hmm. but a former preemie. Yes, yeah, so it may, less babies were discharged on iron. I think, no, I think they were discharged on iron, but I'm sure that between discharge and the and the follow-up, maybe there's a misconception mm -hmm. that can build up, but like, oh, formula has iron mm -hmm. in it. My baby doesn't mm -hmm. need it. When in truth, it's like a regular baby may be okay, but the preemie needs much more. Mm -hmm. The odds of iron deficiency were lower in the group receiving mixed feeding at four to six months compared with exclusive formula feeding group. I think this is where my theory mm -hmm. uh, may, be, may be true. Um Iron indices at four to six months in the iron deficiency and the non-iron deficiency group showed different mean corpuscular hemoglobin count and mean reticulated hemoglobin. However, there were no differences in mean corpuscular volume, mean corpuscular hemoglobin, red blood cell distribution with reticulocyte count and hemoglobin between the two groups. So what was very interesting <clears throat> is that they were measuring ferritin. So when you're looking at it from the standpoint of a hemoglobin, there was not much difference between the groups. But when you looked at the ferritin, the iron mm. deficiency group, which was 132 babies, had a ferritin on average of 14.9 versus 38.7. So they identified some risk factors, lower gestational age, as we've mentioned, maternal gestational hypertension, um, mixed feeding, breast milk and formula was protective for iron deficiency mm -hmm. compared with exclusive formula feeding. And so the conclusions are that the study demonstrate that in iron deficiency 
is a common and significant issue in preterm infants and mm -hmm. requires early prophylactic supplementation. Because significant iron deficiency occurs in preterm infants prior to the development of anemia, follow-up mm -hmm. with a CBC at one year alone may not be adequate. And I think that's the key there. Monitoring mm -hmm. of iron stores during the first year of life for early identification of iron deficiency is important too. Obviously, they make the, the point that iron deficiency is a preventable cause for neurodevelopmental mm -hmm. impairment. I wish they had shared some of their neurodevelopmental data with us. That would have been that would have been cool. Um, and they talk about these different risk factors. So I think that's a huge issue when we're when we're looking at all the different things we could do to improve neurodevelopmental outcome by like one point. Forty percent mm -hmm. of kids showing up at four to six months with no iron supplementation. When you know how IQ and iron stores are related. Um, is like, come on, so it's low-hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah, we forget, as neonatologists, we forget how much neurodevelopment is impacted after they leave the yeah. unit, right? So we have to focus on that. And um, none of the babies had iron overload, which is a major is a major argument for supplemental iron yep. administration. Yep. So, okay, I guess we'll leave it at that. Yep. <laughs> Um, I'll be quick. I just wanted to, uh, point out, um, that in pediatrics, um, there was a new clinical report from the AAP entitled recognition and management of cardiovascular insufficiency in the very low birth weight newborn. This was a collaboration between the committee on fetus and newborn and, um, NAN, the national association of neonatal nurses. So What's the question? To provide uh, an evidence-based clinical guideline for the management of systemic hypotension in very low birth weight infants during the first three days of postnatal life. So since we're low on time, I mean, really, the um, I think this gives us more questions than answers, but is a really good review for everybody, trainees and experienced clinicians alike. Um, they talk about really um, the difficulty in managing hypotension in the very low birth weight um, infant, um, that they have numerous reasons for hypotension, and in addition, um, much more difficulty than the term neonate in adapting to the transitional changes that occur. This puts them at risk for uh, IVH, um, especially given abnormal cerebral autoregulation. However, both hypotension and the treatment of hypotension are associated with increased morbidity and mortality. Um, obviously, we have difficulty monitoring blood pressure and even more difficulty assessing organ perfusion. Um, they did highlight um, some opportunities uh, for better um, looking at those things like um, point-of-care ultrasound through functional echo, NEARS, amplitude EG, and impedance electrical cardiomyopathy cardiometry. They also do a brief review on the data um, for the different pressors in the ELBW. I think in general, it underscores the need um, to evaluate and really identify the cause of hypotension in your specific patient before deciding how to treat. And if you're on Neo Twitter, this is like literally a conversation Every single day. day. Barely comfortable. But that's the point, right? People are saying, people are yeah. all in agreement that saying, hey, you the mean arterial pressure, if it's the gestational age or above, then the baby is well perfused. Everybody is now in agreement that this is kind of that's not kind true. of obsolete. Yeah. Um, but then people are saying, well, how do you assess cardio hemodynamics? And there's all these different mm -hmm. arguments being made. And that, that paper is really good in reminding you what to look for on physical exam, mm -hmm. what to look for mm -hmm. in end organ perfusion, like urine output and stuff like that. So I think if you are, I mean... 
yeah, the basics that you actually don't even need additional technology for, right? That can help you determine the cause of your absolutely. Pregnancy. And it's kind of nice when when the the coffin, as we've talked with uh, Christy Waterberg, mm. comes out with these summaries where it's like, all right, like it's uh, the evidence is weighted, so you know what like the things that are really important, the things that mm. are less evidence based. It's really great. You should all you should all take a look at it. All right, can I do one, okay. one more? One more. That's it. That's all we have time for. You got to go? Quickly. No, you go. Okay, I go quickly. Okay, so the last paper I wanted to talk about today is called Compatibility of Rapid Enteral Feeding Advances and Non-Invasive Ventilation in Preterm Infants, an Observational Study. It's published in Pediatric Pulmonology, and its uh, first author is Judith Benke from Germany. So um, the background is actually quite interesting. Uh, it mentions how within recent years, um, we've we've gathered more and more data to show that um, nutritional supply reduces BPD, um, and it and it has become a major focus of of BPD prevention and also BPD management. Um, now they're quoting, they're saying that the one of the major concerns responsible for slow enteral feeding advances is the potential interference with successful stabilization of the preterm infant on non-invasive respiratory support. And that's something that I've heard myself as well, where people say, you know, we're trying to extubate these babies too early. We, sh <laughs> we should just leave them on the vent, quote unquote, grow them and then extubate them with no problems. Um, and so that's, that's true that this has been something that's, that's simmering still in our in our units um further concerns obviously is that you, mm -hmm. if you go too fast then you are putting these babies at higher risk of sips or neck and <clears throat> we have ourselves mm -hmm. a very uh, aggressive feeding protocol and when we have mm -hmm. <clears throat> people moonlighting in our unit it's yeah. sometimes the big concerns like oh why are you guys having excessive rates of neck which is not the case <clears throat> um so the question of this paper was to evaluate the safety and some clinical outcomes related to rapid enteral feeding in preterm infants weighing less than 1,500 grams. So this was a single-center retrospective cohort study. They looked at the regular feeding regimen that they used to use, 2015 to 2016, and then the new faster feeding regimen from 2017 to 2018. And they included any preterm infants weighing less than 1,500 grams mm -hmm. that, were admitted, that was admitted to the NICU. And they excluded um, babies with major congenital malformations, severe syndromal disease, or who died before 36 weeks of gestation. So their old feeding regimen was quite um, was quite classic. Uh, start at 10 ml per kilo, advance by 10 to 15 ml per kilo per day, and until you reach 140, 150 ml per kilo per day. Uh, all the feeds were given as a bolus or intermittent gravity feed by an NG tube over 10 to 30 minutes at the discretion of the attending nurse. There were options also to put this over the pump as there is in every unit. And this new rapid standardized enteral nutrition advance, the STANA protocol, as they call it, um, involved going instead uh, instead of 10 to, 10 to 15, going up by 20 to 30 ml per kilo per day to a, a, a target feeding volume of 160. Um, feeding was initiated within three hours of life for with standard either preterm formula or the mother's milk or the colostrum, whatever whatever was available. I don't think they didn't mention donor. So that was, that was interesting. Um, and then they had specific deviations from the protocol if there was any issues with uh, how the feedings were going. They collected lots of data, 
perinatal clinical characteristics, gestational age, sex, uh, somatic parameters at birth and at 36 weeks, days to reach enteral, full enteral fees, days to regain birth weight, uh, antenatal steroids, surfactants, apnea, diuretics, hypertension, surgeries, all sorts of things. Um, regarding respiratory stabilization, the mode of ventilatory support, whether it was invasive versus non-invasive, including, nas including nasal CPAP and nasal IMV, uh, so that was differentiated, and the end of oxygen therapy was recorded. In terms of their respiratory management, I think that was very interesting because obviously if they have uh, non-classical respiratory management, you can say, well, that doesn't apply. But uh, standard settings for non-invasive ventilation were equal in both periods, so before and after the implementation of the new protocol, and involved using a PEEP of 5 to 8, a peak inspiratory pressure of 12 to 18, and a respiratory rate of 40 to 60 with an eye time of 0.3 seconds. The clinical criteria for intubation or failure, I guess, of non-invasive uh, ventilation was primary respiratory failure in the delivery room or after delivery, an FiO2 of 40% or more after a maximum of three LISA maneuvers, pneumothorax, uh, any spontaneous intestinal perforation, NEC, uh, severe prolonged apnea with bradycardia under an appropriate level of caffeine treatment, um, and the development of, um, and then there, and then the last thing I wanted to mention, I'm sorry, was that BPD as a clinical outcome was, was followed and using the 2001 NIH definition. Okay, so in total, they had about 300-something um, patients. In the standard group, which was the old protocol, they had 145 infants. And in the new faster feeding group, they had 148 infants. Um, the median gestational age and birth weight was similar between the two groups. In the uh, old cohort, it was 29 weeks and 1,100 grams. In the faster and newer group, it was 29 weeks and 1,065 grams. Um, so they were they were quite mature infants, you know, they were not 23 weekers, but obviously these are the means and there's some variation and some uh, deviations around the, those means. Um, the postnatal treatment strategies, including corticosteroids or factant uh, treatment for apnea did not differ between the two groups. Um, obviously the babies who were um, being fed on the faster feeding regiment reached full feeds sooner than the standard cohort. That's not really surprising. Okay, so some of the outcomes. When it came to um, days to full enteral feeding, that was significantly different, and it went down from 11 days to 7 days. Days to regain birth weight went down from 8 days to 7 days. When it came to Z-scores um, at 36 weeks gestation, for weight, length, and circumference, Z-scores were all improved um, after the introduction of the fast uh, feeding regimen. When it came to uh, IVH, there was no difference. Necrotizing enterocolitis, no significant difference. SIP, no significant difference. Retinopathy of prematurity, no significant difference. PDAs, no significant difference. There was a trend toward less nosocomial infection, a reduction of 11% um, to 5%, but the p-value really didn't make it to statistical significance. And it kind of would make sense if you're feeding these babies faster and you get off TPN sooner than central lines come off, the decreased risk for systemic infection. So it, it could very well be. Uh, when it came to uh, needing surgeries, that was there was no statistical difference and the no, total number of surgeries also was not significantly um, different. So um, in terms of the respiratory outcomes, there were some very interesting results. So when it came to bronchopulmonary dysplasia, there was no significant difference, 42% versus 36%. When it came to mechanical ventilation, the number of babies needing mechanical ventilation, um, that was reduced from 46% to 25%. Um, 
when it came to needing non-invasive ventilation, um, this was 54% versus <laughs> 75%. So um, it was much, much easier to manage babies on non-invasive ventilation in the new faster feeding regimen. Um, the rest of the uh, outcomes were not significant, whether it was a need for surfactant, need for inhaled medication, caffeine, uh, postnatal corticosteroids as well. Mm. The last thing I would like to mention is that when it came to radiologic imaging and septic workups within the 21 days that they looked at, um, it was actually performed less frequently in the rapid advancement group um, than in the regular control group. And so that's very interesting for the concern of whether uh, these babies need um, more sepsis workup, they have more risk of neck. Well, it turns out that they got less imaging and they got less, uh, people were less suspicious of it on in these babies. So that's, that's really, uh, really neat. Mm -hmm. And then they stratified the data based on birth weight. And that was something that was, there was this something that was very interesting. They said, and I quote, as birth weight plays a substantial role in volume targeted enteral feeding, we also analyzed the total cohort in an ROC analysis concerning the cutoff for the strongest effect to reach full enteral feeding within one week, meaning they were looking at what used to be the weight before which reading full feeds within a week was really the, 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 the breaking point. And they found that before implementation, it was 910 grams, meaning that if you were smaller than 910 grams, you had trouble reaching full feeds within a week. And after the implementation, it dropped down to 530 grams. That's huge. Mm. In terms of birth Jeez. weight strata, the days to reach full enteral feeds, um, they had very low numbers in the less than 500 gram groups. So uh, that was not really significant. But to reach full enteral feeds, babies between 500, and a, and a 500 grams and a kilo, uh, that was significantly faster in terms of uh, days, 13 days versus nine days. 1,000 to 1,500, that was also significantly uh, lower, eight days versus six days. Uh, time to regain birth weight was not really significant except in the 1,000 to 1,500 gram group. And then in terms of growth in the Z-scores, there were significant improvement in terms of growth in the babies that were on the faster feeding regimen. And then finally, and I'm sorry we're going over time, but the last point I wanted to make was the need for mechanical ventilation. By birth weight, babies who were 500 grams to 1,000 grams, the need for mechanical ventilation was reduced from 68% to 40%. And from 1,000 grams mm. to 1,500 grams, it was reduced from 26% to 8%. So very impressive. Wow. The, conclu yeah, the conclusion huge. of the paper are that rapid enteral feeding advancement in preterm infants are safe and uh, concerning major clinical short-term outcome parameters improve somatic growth and do not impede non-invasive respiratory support. Um, and so that's, I think, a, a great paper um, to, to justify. Uh, we, we implemented a rapid advancement feeding in our unit, mm -hmm. and uh, this, is, this is really great. Oof, that was quick. I'm sorry. I went really fast. That was a whirlwind. But it's good. Just go fast. <laughs> it, it was, was it was a rapid yeah. review of a paper about rapid feeding advancement done very rapidly. Yeah, it makes sense. Super rapid, rapid, <laughs> hashtag <laughs> rapid. <laughs> and that's all that's we, all have, we time have time for, for today. So. All right, Daphna. All thank right. you so much. Thanks. See you Monday. Thanks, Bye. everybody. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. 
You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICU Podcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. NICU, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.